The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When Donald Trump was running for president, he was often asked, hey, how did that speech you just gave, that fiery red meat speech or that aggressive and dismissive debate performance, how does that appeal to voters not already on the Trump train? And before he gave his chilly inaugural address, chilly cone carnage, in fact, it was said, well, maybe he'll give a speech to unite the people behind him, the president of all the people. It's been 12 days. The answer is no. But actually, that was kind of a stupid question. There's this theory of morality that says one should do the maximum good for the maximum number. Jeremy Bentham called that utilitarianism. But it runs against a prevailing theory of governance, one that George W. Bush embraced because Karl Rove saw the wisdom in it. You actually want to be narrowly elected with the fewest number of constituencies that you owe anything to. That way you're not enthralled to them. Now, I'm not suggesting this was a conscious strategy on Trump's part. The guy can't help but go all scorched earth on anyone who arouses his ire, even if that person, like, say, Chuck Schumer, represents a potential partner down the road. But the effect is that Trump will be governing to please the narrowest band of Americans we've ever seen. Before good polling existed, presidents, all politicians, really had a vague sense of what their constituents wanted and even who their constituents were. So they tried to champion policies that they imagined would appeal to voters. In some ways, this crude time was a utopia of solutions-oriented policy of also following your own convictions, right? A politician could only get a sense, only a vague sense of what people wanted, but he knew who he was. So he tried to make the best case for policies he favored. I mean, he might have favored them for less than stellar reasons, but that's what he tried to do. There wasn't this situation that certain policies, which are perfectly good policies, were off the table because a poll said they were unpopular. And yes, some ideas that candidates got really behind proved to be really unpopular. And if there was a poll, they would have known this. But sometimes the ideas that would have never been brought up if a poll said don't bring those up actually flourished and and solved problems. Trump knows what he knows. And he knows that he has a band of supporters. And he knows the more confrontational he gets, the more they like him and the more it appeals to his people and his brand. He knows he was elected president with much higher unfavorable than favorable numbers. And what this tells him is he doesn't need to be popular to be president. He doesn't even need to be civil, possibly not even sane. The entire question of if his policies are failing in a real electoral sense, what does that mean? It won't be one poll. It won't be one Gallup number. It'll take years to figure this out. He's basically not accepting outside input. You know, no one's going to whisper to him, oh, your numbers in the suburbs are cratering, or even, oh, House leadership has defected. There's nothing that's going to rein him in, except himself, except what he thinks is appealing to the people he defines as the people he's governing for. And we're going to get a couple more years of this, of repugnant recalcitrance. And then maybe, maybe midterms will be a disaster for him, or maybe sometime around 2019 or 2020, he'll be falling further and further behind to whatever Democrat represents the best candidate. And then maybe we'll see some return to normalcy, some input affecting Trump, like being called out on lies or inspiring massive demonstrations. So in the meantime, my job is to report what he says, report when he lies, report what his policies are achieving. Your job is to be a good citizen, to take it all in, maybe to work on some persuasion techniques if you know any Trump voters. 
and, you know, consider moving to Minnesota or Pennsylvania and to not freak out. This is not a recalibration of what we've all been doing as journalists, as citizens, as Democrats, as Republicans, as activists. But we got to know this. We're 12 days down, 1,449 to go. In the spiel, oh, I'll just talk about everything in Washington, even the stuff that hasn't happened yet. But first, this next interview is going out to Sally Yates. Yeah, we're pouring one out for you, Sally. It's the reductress how to win at feminism interview. It's for Sally. From the minds of the satirical website Reductress comes How to Win at Feminism, the definitive guide to having it all and then some. Although having read your book, Sarah and Beth, I, I think of no one so much as that great thespian and that great lover of women, Charlie Sheen, who at the end of his row said, winning, it looks as if I've already won. Beth Newell, Sarah Papalardo are here with me, and you're the brains behind the book and the site, Reductress? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. What are your titles at Reductress? Because there's no name on the book for someone having written it. So it's just like the internet popped out a book, which is nice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. we, we keep it equal. So we're, we're co-founders and co-editors of the site. You is, know. is there a third one in there? Just uh, third author? Yeah. Or, no, no, no. Is or, there a third? Because uh, in the pictures in the back of the book, there were frequently two or three people depicted as having written the book. Yes. Yeah. See? That's Anna Dresden, who was our editor at the time, who co-wrote the book with us. She's now moved on. Um, but we have an, an Breitbart? Two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> She's writing for SNL now, so today's uh-huh. a busy day for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Yeah, we have a new third editor replacing her. So. What's your background? Where'd you start being funny? Well, where'd you, let's, let's go earlier. Where'd you start being women? All right, let's go later. <laughs> where'd you start being funny? Uh, Answer to all is at birth. <laughs> Puberty. Yeah. Uh, true. Our greatest source of pain. Beth, where'd you, uh, where'd you uh, find your comic voice? Um, and was I, it this? Was it the whispery voice? So I uh, was going to school here in New York, and I discovered improv comedy at UCB, started mm-hmm. taking classes there, eventually moved over to sketch and was doing sketch at the Magnet Theater, where I met Sarah. Yeah. And Sarah? I started doing improv around 16 or 17 in Boston, uh, moved to Chicago to do the thing there, did all the theaters, moved to New York because it's New York. And uh, yeah, we met Beth doing sketch comedy at The Magnet. So when did sketch comedy become a website, a satirical website, what some have called the onion of feminism? People have Mm. called it that, right? A little bit. They must have, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was teaching some writing workshops for women and writing some shows about media and stuff and I just kept seeing recurring themes pop up about women's media and uh, just kind of randomly came up with the idea for a fake women's magazine and I emailed Sarah and I was like do you want to do this really difficult task of putting together a website? I was like I love difficult tasks Uh, we started frantically googling because somebody must have done this idea before and realized like nobody actually had done it in any meaningful way so we, we got to working on it wrote like a bunch of articles, launched four months after that, and uh, the rest is history. Now, on the uh, description of the book, How to Win at Feminism, I came across this sentence. The first and only satirical women's magazine, Reductress, was founded in 2013. And I said to myself, holy shit, I've been reading Vogue wrong all these years. Yeah, I mean, all of these places are serious. And that's what's kind of the funny thing about satirizing them is sometimes the line is very, very thin. 
So Bustle pretty much uh, probably had some of the influences that you did, you know, 10 years ago, reading women's magazines and wanting to take them down. But I think they conceived of their mission more as like a spy magazine, which is a mix of insincerity, sarcasm, uh, and really pointed criticism of the actual thing. But you guys really are like The Onion. The tone, at least on the site, is that pretty much every headline you read uh, is fake. It's uh, uh, a misstatement of the author's true intention. Precisely. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And is it like The Onion in that headline is 80% and then, you know, you got to fill it out with decent details, but you basically pitch each other good headlines? Yeah, we're kind of slaves to the headline. There's got to be a clear joke in the headline that someone will actually want to click on and understand what they're laughing at. Like if it turns out that uh, there are really all these details about how a woman apologizes for things that are totally rational, that's not as good as the headline stating as such. Correct. Yes. <laughs> okay, but this book's a little different. There's a sarcastic tone throughout, but I sense that there are a couple different kinds of stories. Sometimes you say the thing that you really do believe, but in an exaggerated manner. Like, you do think Beyonce is pretty much a goddess, right? Yeah. 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 But then you say the opposite of the thing that you believed, like your list of bad feminists include Roxanne Gay and, and uh, Hillary Clinton. You yeah. don't think they're bad feminists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it all kind of fits into the framework that um, this is a how-to manual on how to be a feminist right. from the point of view of a women's magazine that like has good intentions but really doesn't know where feminism came from. So it comes out with like a ton of weird mixed messages and like a misreading of feminism and pop culture. And you know, the authors of this this book believe that Beyonce invented feminism. Right. Yeah. And all and the problem. It's great that Beyonce is great for a couple reasons. A, she's one of the greatest entertainers. B, her point of view is pretty much point of view that we could all get behind and really valuable and all that stuff. But then, you know, if, if so much of feminism hinges on Beyonce, like if she comes out with a bad album, it's possible, guys. Like if she comes out with a bad <laughs> album, does this send, does this set feminism back, you know, a decade or two? It's too much on Beyonce's shoulders. Hmm. Uh, that's like nerve wracking to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Not for her, for anyone but Beyonce. Yeah. Do you think she experiences anxiety as uh, the rest of us do? No, I think she just like absorbs it and like turns it into pure power. Yeah. 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 It radiates I, it. Yeah. yeah. I think she's like behind the scenes, like a big perfectionist and she just really limits what she puts out there. So I feel like there probably is some failure happening. She's just not letting us see it. Yeah. Right. The uh, ying to Beyonce's yang is uh, Lena Dunham, who is uh, the intentions are great and so much of the output is great. Yet one out of every 10 tweets will be like, Lena, pull it back in too much. You're giving us too much. So what the, what does uh, How to Win a Feminism, the quote unquote authors of this book, what's their take on St. Lena? Each section is introduced by like a classical icon of, of that. So mm -hmm. Lena is our uh, kind of icon for the How to Love and Sex chapter. Mm -hmm. And we have an illustration in there of uh, Lena as Eve um, with a snake around her shoulders and the snake and is her own face. Um, it, I don't know. It, yeah, I think like we just, you know, I, I like girls and I like a lot of things that she's done. But I think just her like drive to overshare has just been like the cause of her own demise among women and feminists. Yeah, but. I think it's also like not 
entirely to do with who Lena Dunham is, but in terms, it's more the media's perception of who Lena Dunham is and the way they've inflated her to this, like, quote unquote, voice of a generation. Yeah. Well, which is what she put in her, the first episode of Girls. So, a voice of a generation. Yeah. So I mean, she was saying that too. in character, though. So, I don't I know, but th- there's a lot of stuff. Like, there's a, you know about this stuff you're saying in character stuff. It's a joke, unless you don't want it to be a joke and you think it's a good point, then it'll be a good point. <laughs> but if you think it's a good point, then it's really, it's a bad point. Okay, then it's a joke. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that going on. Right. I also think the media sometimes gives her too much credit for being a comedian when she's not a comedian. Right. So they expect her like dashed off thought to be this like profound statement. And she's like just a writer. I don't know. Like, you know, she's, yeah, and she's young, like she's super young. and overworked. So and yet she's under the microscope more than like any other celebrity we know. So like on that end, it's like I feel bad that everything she says is taken with so much weight. It's mm-hmm. It's a lot of lot on her shoulders. This is true. All right, let me uh, let's go quick hits on some of these things. Ruth, well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Does she have? Is she one of the chapter headings, or she, she's in the book? But yeah, she's not she one of your a, goddesses. She wrote a short piece. Oh, that's good. You know, I after a, a few glasses of wine, just you know, talking about her experience as a woman in the Supreme Court. <laughs> what is she? Merlot, Chardonnay? What do you imagine I, she drinks? I think she she went for like a good Barolo. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's got good taste in wine. Yeah, she, I bet you Scalia influenced that, Definitely. right? Put her mm-hmm. onto the Italians. Yeah, she probably grew up not knowing much more than the Manischewitz. Yeah, <laughs> she flowers later in life. Yeah, definitely. Okay, another question. Am I, can I be a feminist or am I at best an ally? You can be a feminist. Trick question. Ah. It's neither. No. Ah. <laughs> you don't know my politics. <laughs> Pretty Wrong. retrograde. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Special K on banana. <laughs> um, I can be a feminist. Yeah, There's a lot of feminists who don't want to give that to me. I can really? Be, yeah. Really? You know, you're, well, you're an ally. You're a male ally. It's important to mm. keep this label for ourselves. Mm, I don't agree. But I think that just shows you like, you know, there's no boss bitch feminist who's laying down the law for everyone. Everybody kind of has coming yeah. at this with different. Yeah. There's different also people who are really getting really tired of the word ally, too. So like there's just a lot of <laughs> arguments. Well, one major thing about a lot of social movements, but especially feminism, like we don't know how much we could change, but we could certainly argue about the wording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least we could do that. Oh, yeah. What is the truest thing about feminist millennials that's a stereotype? And what is the thing that you think is least true and most unfair? The most true. We're very aware that the personal is political. Uh-huh. Where, like, my parents could never they, – they could not talk about politics at dinner. I think we all kind of have a an awareness that, like – how you vote directly uh, affects how you like live your life and who you are. Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? Uh, yeah, and we're less comfortable like being in the room with someone who we know doesn't respect our ideals. <laughs> yeah, our, our like personhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, the bad thing, I mean, is it just that like everyone thinks we're pussies and like can't <laughs> take a a joke or. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, the least true thing. Least mean, true that, thing. Oh, you, the worst. You, you can take. Well, wait. On your, well, well ooh. wait, uh, Sarah, your yeah. first argument about yeah. millennials. Personal, it's the yes, most is true. That, I is think that, it is true. Is that you think the personal is political? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then the least true thing is that we're wimps. Is, I don't think we're wimps. I think that like every generation looks wimpy compared to the previous generation. And we're yeah. just more like aware of problems that came before us and, like yeah so-called wimpiness is actually just like compassion and empathy for our fellow human beings <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah although sometimes it's high dudgeon at a joke that does happen yeah but it's not like it didn't happen 20 30 40 years ago yeah mm-hmm. smothers brothers being pulled off the air since you guys are working in the uh, mostly satirical space have you been protested or what's the biggest 
headache that you've had to endure based on what was essentially a joke on your website? I think just trolls who either think the satire is real or they're they just see the word feminist or something feminist in the headline and they get angry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there was a few years back we did a piece called Eight Sex Positions That Will Blow His Mind and Destroy His Penis. <laughs> and there were a few like men's rights activists that like took it literally and were like, oh, so like women can just abuse men now, destroy their penis. And like there, there are just a lot of flag waving on Twitter yeah, about like, that. If this was about vaginas, would you think that was funny? And yeah. <laughs> missing the point. But in general rule, if this was about vaginas, it would be funny. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you change penis to vagina, that's if you get lazy and want to phone it in for a month, you could you could get 12 good articles about that. <laughs> yeah. Just change just to do a con- control replace penis to vagina in many, many tomes. <laughs> we'll just like fuel the men's rights movement. Yeah. <laughs> men, that's one of those self uh, defining things where if someone tells you they're from it, run, mm-hmm. run mm-hmm. the men's rights movement. I'm a man. I mostly think I'm right. But man, do I not subscribe to the men's rights movement? (laughs) The book is How to Win at Feminism, the definitive guide to having it all and then some exclamation uh, trigger warning. I don't think there's one earnest exclamation in this whole book, right? Would you say? Valid. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been speaking with Beth Newell and Sarah Papalardo. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks. And now the spiel. Trump berates, Sally Yates, misstates her start date, fulminates, barely deliberates, cannot wait to decide her fate. But that was also yesterday. Today, in Democratic desperate gestures, senators on the Finance Committee didn't show up. They denied that body a quorum. They halted the choo-choo train of approval on the way to a Mnuchin and Tom Price full Senate vote. Another train that broke down was the Senate subway system. Tom Price was trying to flee reporters. The choo-choo would not go. Oh, okay. Hi, guys. Let's talk. Let's rap. Got any stock tips? In general, the no-show is an act of civil disobedience or a political tactic. It's not a good long-term strategy. Eight years ago, Texas Democrats did it to stymie redistricting. Redistricting happened. A few years ago, Wisconsin Democrats snuck across the border to Illinois to prevent the budget vote. They ultimately lost, though their Star Wars rewards balance might beg to differ. Americans want their horrible, dysfunctional government to at least show up and pretend to work. And being a no-show opens the door to statements like this from Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy. I agree with your disappointment, not because I am personally offended, but because that the work of the American people is delayed that much, that much longer. Your mother and I are not mad that you drank a quarter of the triple sack and tried to fill the bottle with water. We're disappointed that you thwarted the will of the American people and also the good folks at Remy Contro. But I do understand the consternation on behalf of Democrats, the feeling of helplessness. I mean, here is Trump tweeting about his ban, his his ban on immigrants, his ban on immigrants from seven countries. These, these were his words. If the ban were announced with one week notice, the bad would rush into our country during that week. A lot of bad dudes out there. But today, there was his spokesman, Sean Spicer, 
his main angry talking point was, this is not a ban. I, I think the president has talked about extreme vetting and the need to keep America safe for a very, very long time. At the same time, he's also made very clear that this is not a Muslim ban. It's not a travel ban. It's a, it's a vetting system to keep America safe. That's it, plain and simple. Again, Trump said it. If the ban were announced with one week notice, the bad would rush into our country during that week. A lot of bad dudes out there. There were two sets of quotes in that tweet, one around bad and one around dudes. If Trump wanted to indicate that ban were not the full phrase or a shorthand or a term of art, he could have put his quotes around ban, but he didn't. He put his quotes around bad and dudes indicating maybe that they're actually good non-dudes. I mean, judging by the punctuation of that tweet, it comes closer to saying that kind-hearted trans people will be streaming across the border than it comes to saying that the ban is not a ban. I mean, if a ban's not a ban, what is it? Here's Homeland Security head John Kelly. This is not a travel ban. This is a temporary pause that allows us to better review the existing refugee and visa vetting system. Well, if I had nothing but a dictionary, I may be able to settle this question. Since a ban means a prohibition, and since a pause means a temporary act, you got to ask, what does a temporary pause mean? A temporary, temporary act? Is that redundant or is that self-negating? I'm just going with the cleaner definition, ban. Later in the statement, Kelly made another assertion. It is easier to play defense on the 50-yard line than it is on the one-yard line. Well, it depends what you mean by playing defense. You have a greater likelihood of giving up points if you're playing defense on the one-yard line. That's true. I assume he means your own one-yard line. But it's actually technically easier to play defense. You have only 11 yards to defend, including the end zone, and every defensive player can inch closer to the line. I could prove this with statistics. I looked it up. Last year, there were 336 plays where teams were defending from their one-yard line. 203 of the 336 did result in a TD, but 133 of those 336 went for a loss, no gain, and in fact, there were seven fumbles, all right? So 300 some odd, 200 scored. But if you look at plays on the 50-yard line, 230 of those plays led to a gain of at least a yard. In fact, the average gain was 9.7 yards and only 52 plays resulted in zero or fewer yards. So in fact, defenses have a better job of defending from the 50. But the fact is we're not defending from the one. I mean, maybe Damascus is the one which would make Turkey next country over has been the source of a lot of terrorism. I don't know. That's the 10 or the 15. And then you go to Germany, which has an open border policy as regards Syrian refugees. That's maybe defending from the 50. We're still on our own side of the field. We got a lot of field before us once we get to the one. Though I will concede, I'm not sure much of this football stuff says anything about the statement, the Muslim ban is lawful. This is where we started. And if you're scoring at home, here's how the administration looks at those words. The Muslim ban is lawful. It's not a ban. It's not against Muslims, but it is lawful. And if you're not scoring at home, you probably fumbled on the one, not the 50. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson knows it's easier to play defense in chess than in golf. 
Just producer Chris Berube knows it's easier to defend the crease in hockey than in trousers. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, doesn't buy the temporary pause as much as he does the evanescent abeyance. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has garments made of Chanel, corduroy, chintz, gingham, satin. But that doesn't mean there's a muslin ban. The gist, we don't really think the world revolves around us. We just assume that when we're not here, there's no quorum and things go a little quiet. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. If you own an Alexa, and I can say these words here now, an Amazon Echo, we call them Alexas, the GIST staff puts together a midday briefing. It hits around noon. It's 90 seconds. We call it 90 seconds with Slate. Consider subscribing or tell others you know about the glories of Chris, Mary, and Mike as they do your midday briefing, 90 seconds with Slate for Amazon Echo.